Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. But we are rolling live on Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, with my biggest fan, the guy who's listened to every episode, <laughs> uh, Aaron O'Toole. Aaron, thanks so much for being here, brother. I appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Mark, and thanks for what you do. Not every episode, but uh, <laughs> uh, the ones I've listened to, I've really, really enjoyed, including music choices in Okotoks and lots of fun stuff. So uh, keep, keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a fun one. And uh, uh, if you do find yourself in town, uh, Haggis is playing all the time. We'll we'll bring you out. Uh, bring you with John Barlow. John uh, definitely attends a lot of Haggis co- concerts. It's uh, it's what you have to do as a politician in, in the foothills. There's no way around well, it. Well, I can tell you, Haggis would be better to listen to than to eat, and I have experience there. So. <laughs> Uh, hey, since we're talking about food, let's talk about the Sam Sharp breakfast as our, uh, as our kickoff. So what was the genesis of the Sam Sharp breakfast? How did that get started? Great question, because next week is Mental Health Week, um, first week of May. Um, big for veterans and first responders community, obviously, because a good opportunity to talk. And I, when I was elected in a by-election back in 2012, I was a guy who had served in the military, was a corporate lawyer, was involved in creating true patriot love. Like when I left the military, like many vets, like you, uh, you turn around and try and help your your fellow comrades and their families. And that's what I've done. And the Ontario Regiment, the armored regiment in Oshawa, the reserve regiment, um, view as their first commanding officer, Sam Sharp. And his story is fascinating, Mark, because He was an elected member of parliament from Ontario. He was also a lawyer, so a military guy and lawyer, a bit like me, I identified with him. And I knew he had died in war, but it wasn't until after I was elected when I learned the whole story about him as he tragically died by suicide, 
And he was a sitting MP who fought at Vimy, at Avion. He was re-elected to Parliament while fighting at Passchendaele, got the Distinguished Service Order. Um, but within the span of that year, getting the DSO being the only sitting parliamentarian elected in absentia while fighting in Europe, Robert Borden, the Prime Minister, came to Uxbridge to campaign for him because he was fighting for us. Within the, the last year of his life, he was returned to, to Ottawa with what they called nervous shock at the time and, and died by suicide at the Royal Victoria Hospital. And when I got to Ottawa, Mark, Sam Sharp was not even mentioned in Parliament's official history of World War I. Not even mentioned. And the other soldier that, that died, Baker, uh, both conservatives, I might add, but this is nonpartisan, um, Baker had a full life-size statue. And Baker died, what you might say, in the traditional sense of what we were used to at the Battle of Sanctuary Wood. And Sam Sharp didn't even make the website, Mark. So I was shocked by that. And my first year, my first real year as an MP was 2013. And in 2013, 2014, you might recall we had a, a rash of, of suicides in the, the Canadian Armed Forces community and the veteran community. And it contributed to a sense of, of you know, doom and gloom. And, and you weren't hearing about the thousands of stories of guys that got treatment, got support from their family or their buds, and were on a road to recovery. You only heard stories of, of suicide. And it was, in some cases, causing a bit of contagion where you saw um, people losing hope. So what, what I did, I spoke to Romeo Dallaire, who was a liberal senator at the time, and I said, let's do an event that allows a veteran or a first responder to tell their story of getting well. We don't like to use the term recovery because some OSIs you never completely recover from, but you get to a better place through treatment, through supports. Well, through I'm working on that, animal. Aaron. I'm working on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I said to Romeo, let's do it and name it after Sam Sharp. And he said, who's Sam Sharp? And so I told him the story. And the nice thing, I'm, I'm going on because I'm passionate about this. This is the ninth annual Sam Sharp breakfast. I've been an MP for nine years. So you can tell what I started working on on the Hill. On the 100th anniversary of, of the death of Sam Sharp, I stood in the house and asked for unanimous consent for us to erect a bust, a sort of a plaque bust of Sharp next to Baker, the other MP who died in, in World War I. Um, and it was agreed to, and we unveiled the plaque. And when the main building of Parliament reopens after construction, Sam Sharp will be there beside Baker. And it took us 100 years to, to kind of correct that historic wrong. But I'm proud of that, and I'm really proud that great vets tell their story. And next week we're having Christian Lillington, who was on your program uh, a month, month or so ago. And um, he will tell his own journey of recovery after a career that included two tours in Afghanistan, a, uh, a UN tour in Eritrea, uh, losing a soldier uh, in his command at CFB Meaford. So Christian will be a really good story that uh, allows veterans in the mental health community to see we've got a ways to go, but compared to Sam Sharp's day, we're at least treating mental health and mental injuries just like we do physical ones. 
we have improved, and there's no way around it. We might even be leaders in the world uh, as far as military and veterans affairs. In the veteran community, especially my position in it, I hear it all, man. <laughs> I hear the you know what? I, I hear the uh, the good stories and the bad, and complaints that are both valid and less valid. Yeah, I hear them all, and the truth is, though, that when I got out in '95 somebody should have had their hand on my shoulder and said, dude, we got to talk. Let's walk you to the MIR. Uh, I'd already attacked a guy in the platoon room over really nothing. Um, stories abounded. I was a legend <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. And uh, so all the signs were there. There was no missing it. Uh, and yet nobody even knew what PTSD was. And I mean, it had only had a name in, in the mid eighties, but, as you would say, what was the name that you used for it? Uh, I called it operational stress injury. No, no, no. And, uh, uh, back in the Sam Sharp days. Oh, back in the Sam Sharp days, they called it nervous shock. See, there, there's, they, that's a new one. They, they've called it shell shock, nervous shock, a soldier's heart or something like that. Like it's had soldier's a, heart. There's, a, there's another term that actually Mark Garneau and I talked about in one of the first, uh, he's a veteran and astronaut, of course, and he said that uh, the term that really always bothered him was in the 50s and 60s, they used the term lack of moral fiber. <laughs> Can you imagine that almost implies a lack of courage or a lack of character when yeah. someone had an injury that probably got worse uh, when it wasn't treated, kind of like uh, your situation. You know, had you gotten plugged into some supports, you probably oh. wouldn't have been getting into trouble in the old when i was in the military we used to call that you were a shit magnet you were always getting it getting <laughs> oh, into shit have you, we you met before it. I, aaron i think I we've met that term. <laughs> <laughs> oh i was a, i was a bit of a shit magnet at military college but it's because i struggled under the military discipline for the first few years <laughs> well those two strong magnets we probably met actually there's a chance we might have uh, because you started in 91 i got to victoria in 92 and i had a run in with a couple rmc guys and uh, <laughs> <laughs> butted heads once or twice on yates street perhaps uh, i can neither confirm nor deny but uh yeah we were we were on the West Coast at the at the same time when I was with the Third Battalion. What a heartbreaker! Shutting shutting down these bases. Uh, yeah. Do you know if there's any um, uh, anything that's codified in Parliament or in law that preserves these bases? All the issues that we had with uh, Workpoint and all the artifacts that are gone forever, um, and not just Workpoint and uh, Capion Barracks and Winnipeg. Oh, and here in Calgary, uh, ripping up the parade square, that's like ripping up the souls of thousands. It's, um, it's sacred ground. It, it's, I, would, um, I would put it on the same level as a burial ground, especially a parade square, the blood, sweat, and literal tears that have been on it, you know? Yeah. Um, is, is there anything to protect, uh, to protect these instead of turning them into damn condos? <laughs> no, there's not, unfortunately. And Should there be? What do you, you think? Well, you know, we did uh, introduce a bill to protect um, sunken sunken vessels and, and ships. But okay. no, this isn't something, this is considered crown land and it just goes to public works. But, you know, I was talking about this uh, last year, particularly because with BC, they had the heat dome and the fires. They had the floods that were insane in the, in the, in the Fraser Valley and um, 
what if we'd had Chilliwack still in operation as a base? Oh. We would have had a lower mainland um, army engineering focused base. We've got now nothing in our third largest province in the lower mainland. We've got a great naval presence and air force presence on Vancouver Island. Well, there's the cadet but- cap at Vernon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for a G7 country, we're left with a with a cadet camp um, for, you know, a very important, our Pacific Gateway Coast. So, you know, you look back, I don't want to get too political on this show, but if you get me talking about the decade of darkness, you know, mm. I've got my Sea King uh, pictures behind me. The first thing Gretchen did was cancel the Sea King replacement, blew $500 million, and we still needed an aircraft. But they closed bases, and if you noticed, Mark, where the bases were closed, they were almost all conservative or, at the time, reform ridings. And uh, Chilliwack being one, you know, uh, you look at uh, in, in Alberta, in, uh, in Winnipeg, part of the base. So it's, uh, it was very strategic, and we lost capacity. So I think we should have a presence there, and we should have some sort of memorial to folks and reminder to people that served there. So what's the link there? Like why, why was it conservative ridings where these bases are being cold, uh, pulled, pulled down? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, this, this is what um, a lot of veterans and a lot of veteran politicians, like people from that era, think that they chose bases in large part where it wouldn't impact their own MP. So if a Liberal MP was the MP from Chilliwack, for example, uh, closing the biggest economic driver and the biggest employer in your riding is a political disaster for the person on the ground. Um, They chose bases where Kretschmann wouldn't have his own uh, Liberal MP in in those areas. Winnipeg, maybe, but you remember the cuts that we had in, in, uh, in the 90s in those budgets from Paul Brother, I was in the 3rd Battalion in Esquimalt. I remember the cuts. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of <clears throat> heavy emphasis in areas of the country that I think, um, quite frankly, the Liberal government didn't care about as much. And it contributes to, to Western alienation as well. But the, the capability that we're lacking in the lower mainland, um, I've been talking about this for years as well, Mark. You know, we lost the reserve presence in Yukon, we don't, you know, beyond the Rangers, we don't have capacity really in our largest territory, uh, the 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 North in the Arctic. No, and the Ar- the the, uh, the Arctic Rangers don't cut it. I mean, thank God for them, but they're really nothing more than observers, and that's it. You know, so it's yeah. for sovereignty reasons that we have them. Yeah, and Canadians should realize we have a border with Russia. In the north. And so look at Ukraine and the situation there. So, you know, we, we have to be far more strategic. And I do think what they call the Cold War peace dividend, you know, when when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, all democracies kind of cut defense a bit. And both conservatives and, and liberals, I think, cut too much, especially the liberals. And the liberals like to rely on the peacekeeping myth kind of take the teeth out of our military too to say oh we're only peacekeepers we hardly peacekeep in relative terms well how many we Canadi- have to be ready to do everything include war fighting how many canadians actually know what peacekeeping is though you know uh when i was in college I, after i got out 
and showing more signs that I really needed help back then. But um, got out of the war was 94. I got out in 95 and in college in 96. So, I mean, I was fresh, fresh out of the hot box. And uh, one of the girls in college uh, said, so you're a peacekeeper, but you had a rifle? I, I don't get it. What do you need a rifle for? You're a peacekeeper. So I passed out <laughs> from shock. And, um, well, but but that, you, is, that, that is uh, indicative, though, uh, that people think that peacekeeping means care bear hugs. And no, it, it, it's fighting. Like you're in the middle stopping. I was t- trying to uh, explain to my kids yesterday. They're like, Dad, how do you stop a war? Well, it ain't easy, kid. <laughs> you're in the middle and you've got people on either side that want to kill each other and you're taking their guns away. They don't like that. It's a tough mission. It is. And, you know, you've stumbled on something that I talk about a lot. And I just taped a, a podcast with Christian Lillington. We talked a little bit about this from his Eritrea mission. But when I was vet, Veterans Affairs Minister, Mark, I was astounded by the number of veterans who who told me my post-traumatic stress or my operational stress really started to develop in a UN peacekeeping tour. Often when they saw things happening and were precluded by the rules of engagement or saw actually soldiers from other UN countries abusing children or committing crimes, they felt that they were actually making the situation worse and they bottled that up. Then they came home And they felt uncomfortable putting their hand up to say they were struggling because of the attitude you just talked about. It's peacekeeping. You can't you can't get injured when you're keeping the peace. Like you said, that that woman at your college, why would you even need a rifle? There's there's no risk to you. It's peacekeeping. And that attitude caused tons of veterans to kind of bottle up that that trauma and that situation and there was a remarkable amount of, of injuries, mental health injuries, from UN peacekeeping because of the, the, the broken nature of some of the missions. And then this, this myth that Canadians are just peacekeepers and, and there was no risk to you there, so you shouldn't be injured. Gosh, we have to, to break that down because uh, I, I have personal friends that, that are struggling with some injuries that stem from those missions uh, it's also why I think we need to overhaul and reform the United Nations, but that's a whole other topic. But um, those missions can be complex and can lead to a lot of complex injuries. I had Rick Hillier on a while back, got to get him uh, back on here again. And he thought it was remarkable that as many people came home healthy as they did from the Balkan conflict, uh, because nobody has spent more time in the Balkans than Ray Hillier that I know of. The guy, you know, pretty much set up a, a residence there. And what people need to understand is when the rules of engagement are so constrictive and you just have to watch the horror and you can't do anything, um, that is something called moral injury. Moral injury uh, where you have this shame and regret it's it's a it's brutal and when you can't help like for myself uh, seeing herds of a thousand refugees from babies to grandmas with giant bundles of sticks on their back for firewood and i can't help them i can't do yeah. anything i can't provide them food shelter the only thing i could do is escort them and uh, shoot anybody that might be giving them a hard time that's that's all i could do which wasn't nothing i could provide them some security but that's all i had 
And um, those missions are not a good time. No, and and that that inability to protect, that inability to act, often leads to that moral injury, as you said. The Balkans, particularly with some of the ethnic cleansing and the ethnic conflict you saw, uh, some UN peacekeeping missions I've heard about um, Canadians almost feeling powerless when they see sexual exploitation of of young people and other things, including kind of um, by UN officials. And it, it, it caused huge tears in, uh, in the sort of mental wellness of a lot of people, particularly if you were there and you had children back home and you're seeing you can't even protect children, you're being sent there in uniform to protect. So I really think um, Canada should be proud of peacekeeping and that, and the history going back to Lester B. Pearson. But we should also use our clout at the United Nations to reform it. And some countries look at peacekeeping, for example, as a way to not only pay for their military, but to keep their military busy out of country. Um, they don't look at it in a professional fashion as, as Canada does. So I think we should really reform some of these things and prepare our troops better with resiliency training and supports immediately after coming back. I agree completely. It kind of brings me to the next uh, bit that I wanted to dig into. When you were Minister of Veterans Affairs and between then and now, do you know if there is any talk of or any work towards resiliency training? Because I'm telling you, Aaron, there's all kinds of programs out there, some better than other, but doing something is better than doing nothing. And getting people uh, more prepared for what they're going to face when they're deployed in particular will do a lot of good. And also bringing tools to them for being able to better deal with what they're going to experience. And as well as the awareness of what do the symptoms look like? Because one of the things PTSD does is that it it blinds you. Your self-awareness goes right in the toilet, but you don't know what you don't know. It's like being drunk. I'm fine. I can drive this car. No, no, you cannot. And uh, by being able to see the signs in yourself and in others, which is part of what this show does, um, you're able to get on it earlier. The earlier you can get on it, uh, if it does happen and you weren't able to uh, prevent through through resilience, the earlier you can get on it, the, the less downstream catastrophe happens. And people don't have to go 23 years without being diagnosed like I did, which is brutal. So uh, is there any talk about resilience and, and more education within the ranks to be able to spot and deal with um, uh, OSIs? Yes, absolutely. And when I became... Veterans Minister, um, that was my, not singular focus, but one of my most important areas of, of work was updating our approach and our, our programs and benefits for folks with mental injuries from service. But what you said at the outset, Mark, that Canada is kind of leaders in, in some of the work with respect to operational stress this is an area that I think we are probably the leader. And let me say why. We've got a ways to go, but... A long ways. If you look, if you look at the Afghanistan mission, the resilience and preparation training and decompression after a tour that soldiers got at the end in the final rotos compared to the beginning, it was night and day. We were not ready 
we were not ready for the Balkans or, or, or anything before that. <laughs> no. But even with, within Afghanistan, we were not ready for um, uh, the trauma exposure and, and the stressors and how to prepare for them and decompress and deal with them before you just disperse from your comrades and go into your home and go back to complete normal. So we, there was a sea change and there was a great uh, um, military doc, Scott McLeod, who now is a veteran living in Alberta, that, that helped along with a team of, uh, in the Surgeon General's team preparing a document called Road to Mental Readiness, R2MR, you may have heard of. Oh, I know it, yeah. And, and that was a way where the Canadian Armed Forces kind of said, we need to embrace this as part of our culture. When I became Veterans Minister, I spoke with, with Jason Kenney, who was the Defence Minister. I said, let's push R2MR out as a federal asset to all police fire first responder forces. And I'm proud to say the firefighters in Clarington, where I represent, they've taken R2MR training now. Uh, police forces take R2MR and there's operational stress, there's decompression. None of that existed, you know, when you served or oh, or, God, no. or even w- when I served. I often tell the story that um, I'll never forget the first time I heard the term operational stress was when our squadron in in Shearwater, Nova Scotia, responded to the crash of the Swiss Air Flight 111, and Fishermen responded, the Navy and the and the Air Force responded, and then what was supposed to be a rescue turned into recovery and a very harsh, traumatic recovery. And we started getting resources from the military on what was called operational stress. And that was the first time I'd heard the term. About a year or two later, Canada opened the first OSI clinic. Um, so we're really talking in the last 15 to 20 years taking this seriously and um, we've come a long way there's a heck of a long way to go but we now R2MR has been looked at by the Australians it's been you know the Americans there's a lot of back and forth and some of the programming run by groups like the Veterans Transition Network which have done courses in uh, in Australia uh, COPE Couples Overcoming PTSD Every Day, a, a program supported by Wounded Warriors Canada, run by Chris Linford, a veteran out in BC. Uh, that course and some of Wounded Warriors courses have been delivered in uh, or shared with Israel, for example. So we should be proud that we are advancing this. And with Mental Health Week upon us, it's a time to say, let's continue to do this and commit to even more. Well, let's commit to make an Operation Tango Romeo an official resource of VAC. Get on it, Aaron. Come on, help a guy out. <laughs> well, you know, my clout, uh, Mark, is not quite what it used to be there. And um, <laughs> look, w- what I love the best about what you're doing, uh, Operation Tango Romeo, sounds very military, but when you change the phonetic alphabet into trauma recovery, you're doing what inspires me so much. Veterans usually unpacking their own stuff, and then immediately turning around and helping their buds. Uh, it's an amazing part of our culture. It's what Christian Lillington is doing. He, you know, he's our speaker for Sam Sharp this year. It's what so many groups uh, around the country do, buddy checks. And when I was veterans minister, I kind of updated the department to start looking at partnering with these groups. Um, 
um, battalion wellness groups, uh, online Facebook groups for veterans, because the old paradigms that you could just work with the Legion, one national organization with all these branches, were gone. A lot of younger vets tune into your podcast. A lot of younger vets share uh, their their thoughts or their their worries on send up the count or some of these some of these resources online. So we started plugging in with the with the facilitators of these assets, and in some cases inviting them to the veteran stakeholders meeting, which shook up the old school stakeholders like the Legion and Anavets and and some of the Korean War veterans. They weren't used to seeing these up upstarts who were on social media. But to support veterans, we have to be where they are. And some of the traditional older institutions is simply not where the younger vets are. The veteran support community, which I would say I'm a SME, for sure. I'm a subject matter expert on this now with 217 episodes. Um, Thank you for reminding me of COPE. i got to get them on the show. Everybody else you mentioned I've had on. Um, Chris, Chris and Catherine Linford. Chris was speaker at our first Sam Sharp mental health breakfast. Uh, they're based out of, I think, Esquimalt. And Chris Chris has a really interesting story, and he wrote a book as well, Mark. Chris was in Rwanda and developed operational stress, PTSD, but was able to get some supports. Um, took a while, and not, not an easy journey, but he stayed in as a medic and and deployed to Afghanistan. And I, I'm writing an op-ed with a psychiatrist from McGill on how important it is to break down the myths and attitudes that that people with mental health issues or injuries cannot work. They can. In some cases, you need them to have the purpose of work and engagement, even if it's part-time or casual, as part of their own wellness recovery. Um, and, and Chris is a great example where he was probably one of the first few people to redeploy operational to a war zone after having treatment for, for operational stress injuries from a previous mission. So it kind of shows the forces is, is getting better. In the 50s, they would say that person lacks moral fiber, right? Hmm. You know, and release them. Now, with the right supports, um, look at Romeo Dallaire, my, my partner in this event. Romeo went um, from, from park benches and struggling with addiction and, and suicide ideation to saving uh, children around the world with his work on, on children soldiers. And um, it's, it's an inspiration to show how get the treatment, get on your journey of wellness, and you can contribute, whether it's helping other vets, whether it's being a productive mom or dad. Uh, a partner, a neighbor, and certainly a coworker, and we need to break down these myths that if you're you're injured, you you just sit on the bench and you can't come off that bench um, ever or until a doctor gives a note. We need to keep people engaged. And um, one of the first veterans that shared that with me was actually Sean Bruyer, who was a veteran who. Uh, certainly kept me on my toes when I was minister and kicked me in the shins and, and the ass a lot. But he actually had some great ideas. And that was one of his ideas was don't claw back every little cent a veteran makes if they're on disability supports. Let them start earning a little income, getting out there, doing some work. That should be part of the recovery because you get that that structure, that 
uh, satisfaction and that purpose that so many veterans need after they hang up their uniform. Are you uh, familiar from listening to my show or from experience of why it is that people with OSI sometimes are un- unemployable? I guess um, this is a pop quiz. <laughs> I'm not sure if I heard a, an episode that covered that entirely. As I, I, I admitted before, you are the world's largest uh, podcast uh, on on veterans uh, issues and trauma recovery. I have not listened to all 200 plus Um <laughs> But this is something I've encountered a lot is um, even with complex PTSD or complex OSIs, um, you know, engagement in some capacity is possible if done properly with with physicians and with the support of family. Family becomes so central to the wellness of, um, of a veteran or a first responder. But I'm a big advocate of work. You know, another veterans advocate I, I love, and I'm giving a lot of them shout outs because, uh, you know, this is a journey that takes many hands. Aaron Bedard, one of the Equitas veterans and, and someone that became a good friend, he was suing the government when I became minister. And I consider him a good friend to this day, as I do all the Equitas veterans. And we temporarily at least settled that lawsuit. When I met him in my first couple of weeks as minister, he gave me uh, Victor Frankel's book, which is a book that a lot of veterans have found helpful in their journey. And it's man's search for meaning uh, a book written uh, from his experiences in the Holocaust in a concentration camp, finding that meaning and that purpose is one of the biggest things for a veteran in, in recovery from OSIs because the purpose was given to you when you were in the military, right? From, recruitment to training to where you were posted, what you wore, what you ate, what you did, you suddenly take that away from someone who's who's had that structure and purpose for 25 years, you're lost. And so helping reestablish purpose through family, through volunteerism and helping your buds, but also through work uh, or, or education or training is so, so, so key. I'm going to be talking a lot about that this mental health week because employers, and we, we do a lot of bell let's talk, and there's a lot of reducing of stigma, but we actually have to change some of our benefit programs and some of our workplaces to actually turn that talk into action. I talk about purpose all the time. Uh, the function of this podcast is completely selfish. It's to give purpose <laughs> to myself. And uh, anything altruistic that spins off of that, well, great, bonus, that's the gravy. But I do this for me because it um, gives me that sense of purpose. And I'm constantly talking about volunteerism, if, uh, if nothing else. Because when you vol- are volunteering for a cause that you believe in, the sense of purpose that that provides you does a lot. But my question was actually about uh, the, the negative feedback loop of capacity in some veterans with OSIs, which keeps them unemployable. And that negative feedback loop is, I try to get a job, I have a job, I was able to get it because I'm a cool dude, but I can't keep it because I'm clashing with everybody. And I'm just not a fit, quote unquote. And you get fired. I was like, okay, well, that sucked. So let's buck up. Let's do it again. And then you get fired again in six months. Whoo, that was a stomach punch. Try it again. At some point, Aaron, the, uh, people can't because it's a compounding trauma. 
and that rejection and oh my god i'm a square peg in a round hole and what's wrong with these damn civvies and uh and then they 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 end up spiraling into addiction and all kinds of things and this is where homeless veterans come from people that have, that have given up because they've been punched in the gut too many times it's like a kicked puppy you know eventually that dog's going to stop loving you and um that is the negative feedback loop that ends up having people so that uh, they just cannot any longer have a job in the states it's one in five veterans are homeless but i haven't seen that stat i don't think the research has been done in canada because i don't think people want to know the answer uh, have you uh, do, do you have any knowledge of veteran homelessness in in canada what the numbers are or uh, what people are trying to do to try to uh, intervene well, there's some great ver- uh, great groups intervening, and I used to work with uh, Vets Canada. I'm not sure if you've had Jim and Debbie Lowther on your program. There's Jeez, another couple of names. In. I'm putting that one um, down. Well, I give them shout-outs because, like, literally, when I was Veterans Minister, I just wanted to empower a lot of these organizations. Um, they would do vet walks, um, including here in Ottawa. I had some friends that I served with that I know went on the vet walks. It's been very hard to, to nail a number. Our number is not the same as the United States. As you might imagine, the United States being the global superpower, being a country that literally every generation almost, um, well, you can actually say every generation has had a major war, you know, Vietnam, the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, they, they have such numbers when I went down and met my counterpart um, in Washington, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Bob McDonald, a uh, West Point grad and a former uh, uh, Army officer, and we were talking about updating support programs for mental health, for family support. You know, if the military wanted you to have a family, they'd assign you one. You know, that old uh, <laughs> adage. You know, the old programs did not support families, and I was trying to support that he was the same. We were tackling the same things and we were both veterans and business people that were trying to modernize departments, but the numbers were staggering. He, he had 30 million veterans. That's like the population of Canada, right? That's incredible. And it it is literally incredible. So it made me come back to Canada and say, um, and he was running a chain of hospital systems (laughs) in the United States because they don't have federal healthcare. Right. So, I came back saying, okay, our challenges are immense, but not as immense as my friend Bob in the United States. And what, what we did at the time, and I still think it's the best solution, Mark, is partner with organizations who are on the ground. Because Ottawa is sometimes, and I'm pointing at the parliament buildings, you're wondering what I'm pointing <laughs> at. Ottawa is sometimes so completely disconnected from the needs of veterans in, in the band Haggis in Okotoks. How do we know if there's homelessness in Okotoks? You know, Medicine Hat had one of the first globally recognized programs to combat homelessness. That didn't come from a bureaucracy here in Ottawa. So when I was minister, and I was fortunate I had Walt Natinchuk as my deputy minister, uh, a a great Canadian and someone that, that knew the issues, we tried to identify some of the best lead groups actually working on the ground for vets and fund them. Right. And then probably provide some structure. And if they needed some governance advice or 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 direct 
ties into my department. I try and do that. Suggesting that the government should then come up with something that veterans were already doing themselves when they're doing it well um, is, is, is lunacy. So we knew this, there was a significant problem with homelessness, thousands. The biggest problem actually is what we call near homelessness. This is the veteran who is couch surfing yeah. that has lost their, their, their spouse or partner and they're about wearing their welcome out with their latest buddy that they're crashing with. If we can intervene then, you can actually avoid someone being on the street. So we, we swept that near homelessness into the discussions as well. And, and yeah, Vets Canada is doing a good job. There, there's been some other organizations try and tackle this. And uh, um, great organizations in, in Alberta, especially my friend Brett Wilson, has done quite a bit for, for uh, vets and, and the food bank and a number of things meant to support um, initiatives to keep veterans in their homes, keep them doing well. I've always wanted to go to the breakfast on the bridge that they have in Calgary uh, that used to raise money for the, for the food bank and the family resource centers. And so bravo Zulu to all the groups out there tackling it. I think this is where Ottawa should partner as opposed to suggest Ottawa knows best. Well, back to being a SME for these resources, uh, one of the biggest problems is how fractured it is. Well, there's two major problems. One is how fractured, because there's a zillion uh, little mom-pop organizations that are to support veterans. In the States, there's 45,000 of them. <laughs> and I have no idea what that number is here, Aaron. But um, for the Veterans Affairs website at a least to have a couple of tabs of okay here's the resource tabs have them in categories if you're looking for veterans retreats here's a list if you're looking for equine therapy here's a list and break it down into categories and list um the ones that are have some sort of vetting process i would imagine but have those resources on there including links to this show like here's the resources and one of the reasons that that doesn't happen is that there's a lot of infighting. The Royal Canadian Legion, who I love, uh, they helped me out when I was in my darkest hour and started the whole process with VAC. So I love them, and they're not perfect. Both things are true. Um, they have I've seen firsthand that they have sued other veterans' organizations because they get their nose out of joint, and uh, they get their feelings hurt, so they start suing people. Well then that everybody loses both veterans organizations lose and the veterans lose because those resources went to lawyers instead of what they're supposed to be going to. So there's a lot of dysfunction in, in that community. And I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm trying to be that center point as best as I can to bring all these uh, resources to one place. So somebody can do a one-stop shop and be aware of those resources in a long form format. Um, but what do you think of having all these private resources, all these um, uh, small organizations listed and categorized on, on an official VAC website? Um, I'm really glad you brought this up because you are kind of a, um, a clearinghouse and a center point for a lot of organizations that are, are doing things we all all want to see succeed. I, I often say we're all fellow travelers on the same journey. We may be on a slightly different path, but we're all headed in the same direction. And we should really stop this uh, 
competition. Um, often for some charities and, and nonprofits, it's a competition for scarce funds. It is. But some of the, some of the traditional groups, um, I love the Legion. I'm a member. You know, it took me two years as a new MP to get a meeting with the Legion. Two years. And I helped start True Patriot Love, the kind of one of the larger uh, uh, military family organizations. And so when I was Veterans Affairs Minister, my first meeting with the Legion, I chastised them for about an hour uh, uh, for, for just having this sense of entitlement and increasingly declining engagement. Here's here's something I've only. Well, told they a won't few be people. on my show. I've invited them. I don't know how many times. Yeah, that's, that's both, just, both regional and national headquarters. And uh, hey, they're welcome to come on. They are a major resource, and I've got a hell of a great Legion story personally. I want them on the show. And why would they not come on this show? I mean, I got Aaron frickin' O'Toole for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know, they, what's their high horse here? But uh, I wish. Well, I, I wish they'd come. Let me on. speak to that. Let me speak to that. The, I love the Legion. So when I'm yeah. tough on them, it's only tough love. Tough love. The first Veterans Affairs commendation I awarded was another shout out to a great uh, veterans advocate, Craig Hood. And he got 30 Afghan veterans, I think it was 30, to join Legions in the greater Toronto area because we needed younger, particularly Afghan veterans, to have their voice heard at the Legion table because the Legion is so influential. So I awarded him at uh, Maple Leaf's military appreciation game uh, my veterans accommodation. And then he later formed an OSI subcommittee within the Legion. So there are some young Legion members shaking things up. But at my first meeting, I, I kind of chastised them a bit, thanked them. And then I said this, I have only told a few people, as Veterans Affairs Minister, I want to give every Legion branch a Wi-Fi and pay for your Wi-Fi, a two-way uh, teleconference TV, and pay your bills for Wi-Fi uh, forever. And they looked at me like, "Why do, we don't need that. We need to fix our roof or whatever. I said, every Legion has a veteran service officer. And if we gave you a direct line, actually a video line, to Charlottetown where Veterans Affairs is, um, your veteran service officer can facilitate help even better than the offices. Because remember, some of the lesser used offices were being closed and the conservatives were being accused of, of, of being cold to our veterans. Veterans weren't going there. So we have to use the facilities and all these small towns that have legions. We could have turned them into satellite offices. And I said, look, even if you don't do that, We'll pay for your Wi-Fi and you have a, a CV or a resume writing clinic for vets who, who want to bring in their laptop or their iPad. I said to them, that's what the younger vets are doing. They're on their iPads and stuff. They don't want to come into the Legion and wear the old blazers and do the medals. And, you know, that's not their thing. But the organization was so slow to adapt. And so what has happened is younger, more nimble in some cases, more connected to the new needs of veterans organizations have stood up in their place. What we should do is work together. Whether we have this clearinghouse website that introduces people, I'm in favor of that. I also, uh, when I was running for leader, um, and had I become prime minister, I would have implemented this because I've talked a lot about it. I wanted to create a passport system for people that released with uh, a mental health injury and any approved program 
whether it's equine therapy and Campraxis, whether it's COPE, whether it's the Veterans Transition Network, any of these approved programs, there's yoga, there's there's mindfulness, there's a bunch of them, as you said. Yeah, and good ones. You, you could self-direct your care using your, your, your passport, using your portfolio of benefits, and they would be interchangeable for you, your spouse, or a, or a family member. Kind of like a Blue um, Cross card, you're thinking. Well, not just a Blue Cross. This would be, um, say you went on the Veterans Transition Network, and that had some benefit, but you wanted to do a program with, with your spouse, you know, to work out some of the issues because there's caregiver fatigue, there's your transference of OSIs. Um, you should be able to select if you go on that that next course. You have an allotment every year of, of support benefits because you were released with an OSI. You take charge of your own wellness. What VAC does is provides you that 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 budget and approves the programs, so it can't be a fly by night. Um, somebody opens a bed and breakfast and suddenly says they're doing therapy. It has to be accredited, but vet, Veterans Affairs could then accredit. And you, with advice from from peers or, or support programs, could then select each each year something to help your your wellness. Part of it is allowing the veteran a sense of of directing their own care. And if they heard a buddy said good things about a specific program, and you know, there's an outward bound program where some veterans get together and do a do an outward bound mission together and, and have facilitation by a therapist. We should not let the gatekeepers at Veterans Affairs or Blue Cross or any dictate um, that care if if it's allowing the veteran to feel that they're in charge of their own wellness. Aaron, I am so impressed by your breadth of knowledge within this space. Um, I'm actually a little shocked. Uh, all, all the different organizations <laughs> that, that you're aware of, but also the intricacies of how OSIs work and their impact on our community. Uh, bravo. I'm I'm really surprised and pleasantly surprised. I would like you to be the Veterans Affairs Minister again, please. Uh, could you could you think you could manage that? Get us elected when um, I tried. Believe you, <laughs> believe you me. When, when, when the Canary, when the Canadian, when the Conservatives uh, form government again, which should happen sometime within the next century, uh, when they form government again. Would you want to take that chair again, the uh, Veterans Affairs chair? Look, it was an honor when I did it. Would be an honor to ever do it again. Um, when when I so I was elected in a by election, I came in, started Sam Sharp, started talking about veterans issues because I I was a veteran and I I never I released before being involved in Afghanistan and I felt guilty uh, about seeing friends encounter loss and and seeing our highway heroes. So it's just in my DNA. And so when Harper appointed me, I was his last cabinet appointment. There were lawsuits, there were wait times, there were protests. I had, you know, groups of veterans that would follow me around and yell at me. And I just said, look, keep yelling. Yeah, we do that. <laughs> and, and and I would send out uh, report cards and, and progress reports and say, govern my progress. And, and the Equitas guy saw I was serious and the night I won my re-election in 2015, but we lost government, I had some of my Veterans Affairs team in Bowmanville helping me campaign. Many of them were veterans. And I'll never forget uh, uh, an amazing veteran, an amazing friend, Sabelle, 
looking out of the corner of my eye when I'm giving my my thank you speech to my volunteers in the media for winning, but we knew we were going to lose this privilege of finishing our work at Veterans Affairs, and my team is literally in tears. They had left jobs, making more money to come work with me uh, as Veterans Affairs Minister because as veterans, they wanted to fix the system too. So Sabell was my stakeholder uh, director. Uh, Joel Watson, a dragoon and a lawyer, was the one that helped us win the trust of the, the veterans from Equitas, like Aaron Bedard, like Mark Campbell. You know, these were Canadians I considered heroes, and I, I felt it was a failure for them to be so frustrated that they felt they had to sue their government. So um, we lost that privilege to do our work. We were looking at the passport. We were looking at even more supports for mental health. We'd launched an equine therapy pilot. We'd launched the service dog program. But we kind of only got about 60% done on what we wanted to do to modernize the new veterans charter and and to to help. And so it would it would be an honor to do it again. And Mark, coming on your show, doing Sam Sharp, you know, I'm still involved in True Patriot Love. They're bringing the Invictus Games to BC in 2025, the first winter Invictus Games. I will keep doing this till the day I die. And you're not a politician uh, uh, and you're doing great work to help vets. So I think we all have a role to play. And whether I get an official title or not, I'm going to still be doing it. Well, if you get back into that chair, I sure hope that uh, you have an advisory board and you put me on it, man. I'm in. Put me in, coach. <laughs> um, why is that? particular chair why is the veterans affairs minister's seat such a hot potato i mean nobody ever lasts very long it's it's almost treated like it's the toilet bowl prize why is that you know there's the biggest reason and look i had some success i got i I had some areas where i didn't do as well as i could have um and i i always said i will never bullshit a veteran if i can't get something done you may be pissed off at me, but you'll never say O'Toole lied to us. Um, and it was nice. And, and when I was running for prime minister and, and leadership, I've seen various veterans say that. Yeah, he was always straight with us. That's the biggest thing that is owed to our veterans. And if you look, the main challenge comes from this. In the, the early 90s, being veterans affairs minister, the last or the, the, the sort of on the on the the order of precedence, it's considered the kind of most junior full cabinet minister. So you're ahead of some secretaries of state and stuff. And in the mid nineties, it consisted of going to Vimy in April, going to Juneau uh, beach uh, in June, uh, remembrance day visits to veterans, updating programs like veterans independence, the entire veterans affairs department, stood up after World War II, was built on serving the World War II veteran. And then they kind of just swept in the Korean War veteran. And they did not know how to handle Cold War, Balkans, and then Afghanistan. They hit a wall because we had tens of thousands of people serve. We had complex injuries. And the department hadn't been updated. So veteran ministers post and during Afghanistan had a department 
that wasn't quite ready to meet the needs of the veteran. And it went from being almost a ceremonial position in the 80s and 90s into being one of the most complex, pressure-filled, and benefit-driven programs. The health minister in Canada doesn't administer health programs other than for Indigenous Canadians, which they don't do very well, and the military. They contract for veterans' care. So veterans' affairs is, is one of the roles that touch people's lives, and the department and the, the ministers were not ready for it. So I was the first veteran to have the role since, I believe, Fred Mifflin, who had been under Kretja. And on, when he was there, he was in the Navy, he was an admiral, he would just go to parades. And it kind of went to an older uh, uh, George Hees, a veteran from World War II, was Brian Mulroney's first veterans minister. You know, he opened the Hees wing at Sunnybrook because in the 80s, the World War II veterans were hitting their their 60s and heading into 70s. And it was easy, sadly, because they had handled all the complex cases in the in the 50s and 60s from from World War II and, and Korea. And the department needed needed a bit of an overhaul. And I will give credit where credit's due. Um, Julian Fantino started some of the reforms, but ran into a wall of resistance from angry veterans groups, and some of those encounters didn't go well. Um, what I did is came in with a fresh approach. I, I went into legions. I went into rooms with people yelling at me to say, look, I'm here to build trust. Um, but if you if you don't have veterans on your team, and that has been a problem that Kent Hare and Seamus and others had, they didn't hire veterans. Well, that wasn't Kent Hare's only problem. <laughs> you could say. And and look, I offered, here's, a, here's something that not everyone knows, Mark. I offered everyone that came after me a sit-down briefing to let them know where I thought the department needed to go, what was working well, what, was, what wasn't. The only one that took me up on that offer, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Interesting. And I had a, I had a meeting with Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I thought, she's actually going to get it. And then we saw what happened with her and, and Trudeau. Um, none of the others wanted to, and I was disappointed with Seamus because I served and sailed on HMCS St. John's with his brother. And I know he cares deeply, but if you don't have a gut check with veterans on your own team, um, you're not going to be able to, to perform the challenge function to your bureaucracy enough. And you're not going to be able to provide the vision at the cabinet table that is, that is needed. And I was able to do that. And Harper was great with me when I needed to do something, whether it was on Equitas or uh, hiring uh, people to, to clear out the benefit backlog. I'd have meeting, Harper would know exactly the issue, and he'd give me the green light. And it was a, I really enjoyed that relationship. If Harper knew you knew your file, he'd give you a lot of wiggle room. If he didn't think you knew your file, <laughs> his office would be overseeing everything you did. And uh, <laughs> I, I got a lot done in, in, uh, in 10 months, but, but ran out of runway. I got to get Harper on the show. He just lives just around the corner. I'm in Okotoks. He's in Bragg Creek. I actually know a guy that did his water system, <laughs> but but he better not sneak up on him because they are ceases guys in the bushes. Um, <laughs> I was about to ask my next question about the Veterans Affairs position, but really, and for any cabinet uh, uh, position, it seems to me that it would behoove any cabinet position to have a board of directors um, that are 
to to have them in touch with the community of which they they represent um that would make a lot of sense good but you you did that unofficially but uh, has there ever been any talk about cabinet ministers having something that's a bit more official so that they are truly plugged into because everybody talks about out of touch politicians on their in their ivory towers so to fix that because uh, it's not without completely without merit um to fix that uh is there any talk about having all cabinet positions a bit more officially plugged into the community through the equivalent of a board of directors of stakeholders? Well, there are versions of that, Mark. As I said, I had not only my office where I brought in some some veterans. If you include Walt Natinjik, I had three dragoons working for this uh, Air Force guy. Um, and and I had Sabelle, I had a few other veterans. Um, I also had the stakeholder summit we would have every year and I had stakeholders and I would have little mini stakeholder summits where I would actually bring to Charlottetown to meet with the bureaucrats, uh, veterans like Jody Middick, uh, mm-hmm. a veteran like, uh, that I know named David Mack, who, who works in tech and works with the, uh, the group trouble Victor, a veterans organization so that we could, update the MyVac account to actually be veteran friendly, not to be designed by a software dude. It still isn't. No, but we started making progress and Aaron Bedard uh, came. And when I used to speak in Charlottetown um, to the employees, you know, sometimes six, 700 people in the atrium, I would bring veterans uh, to either meet with them. I had uh, Chris Linford, I think came from the COPE program and spoke to the group because I wanted to say the backlog of files here are not numbers. Each file is a family. So we've got to clear this backlog and, and we did, and it's out of control now under, under the liberals. Uh, other departments like finance will have a committee of economists that the minister will meet with from time to time. Um, so there's, there is a version of this for some of the, the, the portfolios, but I agree with you. The more that a, a minister or even a, a member of parliament can get out of the Ottawa bubble and hear some real on the ground opinions, whether it's from veterans, whether it's from people in the oil patch, whether it's from indigenous groups, you have to make sure you're hearing from the, the folks you're really supposed to serve and not just Ottawa. That really can be a, a bubble that is a bit disconnected even though the people in the bubble are well-intentioned, it's, it's a culture that builds up in a large bureaucracy. Well, I think if there was a, a publicly posted stakeholder board that, uh, that each cabinet minister had that anybody, any Canadian can, can go into and go, oh, look, they're not disconnected. Here, here is everybody in their 12-person board or whatever it is. Oh, okay, now I feel represented. I, that would go a long way. Like what a platform item that could be. As far as, because uh, you talked about Western alienation earlier, which just drives me bonkers that uh, people in Ontario, don't, they don't get it. Like, what the hell is Alberta complaining about? Uh, a lot, actually. <laughs> but when people, their voice is taken away from them, that is not a good feeling. It doesn't make you feel like you're part of the Canadian family when you don't have an equal voice. Uh, and especially if you're being chastised and... Um, uh, being ridiculed. It doesn't make you feel like part of the family. It makes you feel like the black sheep, which Alberta 
is nationally. I challenge anybody on, on that to, to argue with me on this. And, um, but to try to bridge that gap, uh, having some sort of equivalent of a board of directors, I think could really go a long way to having people feel like they're being heard. It's a good idea. And I, I really do think that the biggest challenge facing Trudeau is the alienation in the country, most of it created by him. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that, that Alberta is the black sheep at all. I think it's the golden sheep uh, because the, the golden fleece has actually paid for when I hired new Veterans Affairs employees. Um, we can't take a province that contributes so much proportionately to our, our GDP and regulate the hell out of it. You know, I, I have real problems with Trudeau's ideological approach where he says what he thinks he needs to to win some urban votes um, at the detriment of areas of the country where he's already challenged and not doing well, like Alberta and Saskatchewan, for example. And he did the same approach with with the pandemic, where he demonized people that were not vaccinated. Uh, any expert you talk to, and I spoke to a lot, I, I doubt he even read his briefing notes, knowing, knowing the Prime Minister. Um, don't demonize people when a lot of people had questions and hesitancy about vaccines. All the parties asked him not to call an election in the pandemic. He did it using the vaccine mandate. And that has caused such division. I saw it when there was a bunch of truckers on the road. Um, some of them had good points. Some of them were just railing on a bunch of other things. But that sense of division has gotten worse and worse and worse every year. And I think it's because the prime minister doesn't try and balance off the real needs of all Canadians. And that means families in, in Red Deer or Fort McMurray their concerns about the well-being of their family, their job, how will they pay their mortgage, that's just as valid as the concerns of a family in uh, Toronto Centre or Durham or Halifax. And part of being Prime Minister is not playing off one region against another or rural Canada against urban. Um, so I tried very hard to bring people together in a pandemic, um, not playing to the to the worst instincts or frustrations. I fell short, unfortunately, but I still think what the Conservatives need to do is, is balance off those interests well, you know, show why Alberta is so important and make sure that we also show that we recognize uh, Quebec and Ontario and Atlantic want to see more action on the environment or, or Indigenous reconciliation. The Conservatives need to have smart policies there too. So it will be up to the next leader to find that balance. But uh, I really think the, the government of Mr. Trudeau is, is quite disconnected from the, the country right now. There was a report that came out recently, um, uh, talked about in the Globe and Mail, uh, uh, talking about extremism in the ranks. What a load of crap. Uh, what, what I think is going on here, and it's very disturbing, is that because within the military, it's as diverse as any other group of uh, Canadians. You know, it, it's, a, it's a community. There's people of, that support all parties within uh, the Canadian military. But there is a bit of a conservative, conservative leaning toward, um, w- within the military. Uh, and it occurs to me that this extremism in the ranks is nothing more than a conservative that's that's what I'm thinking, and they're, they're looking for ways to uh, to silence anybody that isn't 
left of Castro. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, look, um, we could do an hour on this, Mark. You know, <laughs> well, it, uh, it really seems and that that uh, liberals are just um, not so friendly towards the veteran community. And one of the, I know I'm asking two questions without asking getting the answer from the first, but Remembrance Day ceremonies where people are showing up late or not at all. I think uh, Trudeau missed two or three Remembrance Day ceremonies uh, since he became, became PM. I mean, freaking shocking. But uh, it, it really shows that anything that they say about veterans is complete window dressing. But behind the curtain, we're not very popular with them. Why do you think that is? Well, let me ask answer your first question first because you did pile on two there. And, Sorry about uh, that. I guess you're the host. You you're you're in the driver's seat. <laughs> first off, I'm really proud of the Canadian Armed Forces. Proud of my time in it. I often called myself an average camper, um, but it, it transformed me from a cocky kid from Bowmanville into someone that loved the country and uh, aspired to be a good leader. The forces needs to modernize and change, and some attitudes have to have to change. The first woman I met at boot camp in Chilliwack, Julianne McKenzie, died flying a griffin, saving a life in Labrador. First woman I met in the Canadian Armed Forces died in active duty. Um, I don't think there's been enough done to ramp out some of the uh, some of the shit they take. Quite frankly, I saw it, yeah. uh, I, and. We have to send a zero tolerance approach because when you put on a uniform, you're opting for values that are greater than yourself, which is what is special about the institution. You're joining something that is really the pinnacle of citizenry for our country. So you have to be better too. And when I was veterans minister, I spoke at a women in defense conference and I addressed this um, when I was in. I can remember attitudes. There were still not all ships. My ship was the last male ship in, in the military. I remember the rough ride women had trailblazing. You could not have been out as an LGBTQ Canadian when oh I God, was in no. the military. Jesus, and, no. And, and, you know, I would have been part of that, that attitude uh, then. But I want to be part of the attitude now that doesn't, because over my service in the Air Force, I met some folks from that community that were serving and willing to die for their country. So we should give them basic respect. And I was really upset by by some of the allegations, particularly against the previous chief defense staff, because I want my daughter, who is 15, I would like her to at least see the military as an option. I don't expect my kids to go off to RMC and follow my my path, but I don't want them to not choose it because they think it's an environment where they're going to get harassed. Uh, it would be the same. I often think indigenous Canadians who have served in large numbers going back in our history, you know, uh, Tommy Prince, uh, um, you know, um, Pega Mabo from Perry Sound, the, the incredible sniper who probably didn't get decorated as much as he should have been because he was indigenous. Um, we have to make sure that if you're willing to put unlimited liability on the line for your country, your country is going to make sure you can have a, uh, a career with advancement, not being held back by who you are, and free from intimidation or harassment. I really think the military can lead here. And what you said is right. 
the military, we don't have forced compulsory service. You're going to get a cross section of people from different economic backgrounds and different other things. And some people will come in with some, uh, you know, bad attitudes or, or racist attitudes. It is up for the institution to, to help people be better, help people to see the better uh, approach in themselves of respect and to root out any little pockets of, of problem or, or issue. And, you know, the liberals, when they disbanded the airborne because there were a few bad incidents, that's actually the wrong approach. You're yeah. sweeping everything under the rug and you're tarnishing an institution going back decades that actually people were very proud of. What you need is leadership to fix and root out the problems and push people to aspire to be the best, the fittest, the toughest, but also the most principled um, that that is possible. And I think Canadians generally, historically, pound for pound, have been some of the best war fighters in the world. And if we want to keep that reputation, it also means we have to have the best of the country. So that means a bit more diversity, you know, more women, but not by by lowering standards, by making everyone push up to to the highest standards, including uh, of respect and tolerance. Uh, I wish I was prime minister, you know, for a billion reasons, but this is one. I, I think the Canadian Armed Forces right now is in uh, a morale crisis, a direction crisis. It's got a government that doesn't care about it. Um, it's really struggling, and I, I, I want it to find its footing. Well, perfect segue. There's a question from Kelvin Kosh in in here. Kelvin, if you're still listening, I finally got to it. Uh, ask Mr. O'Toole if he considers the undermanned battalions to be a national crisis. What do you think, Aaron? Kelvin, yes, it is a huge crisis. And in fact, um, if I can do a cross promo, Mark, to my Blue Skies political podcast, uh, I interviewed Mark Norman. You got to have uh, me month and a half ago on military readiness, our army in particular right now is so undermanned that it is an operational crisis. The battalion strength issues, the reserve levels, and look, we we have Latvia. We just deployed a few more people to, to Poland. And what Mark Norman said on the show that a lot of Canadians should really tune into, it takes four people in the system to produce that one person. You know, you're talking training systems, you're talking readiness, support. Um, If we're short, we are short that four for every one ratio. We are not going to be able to properly deploy. And we've got probably a shortage in the army right now of about 20% of the need in terms of personnel. Uh, That is a crisis. And so, there should be a huge recruiting boom. There should actually be money spent on uh, inducement to prolong service and to recruit. And also dealing with some of these, these um, operational issues, whether it's with respect to Operation Honor or, or other things, we need more women. We need more new Canadians joining because we're short. And if, if we get the numbers up, we then need to retain them. So I think this, this, critical manpower shortage is one of the biggest challenges the forces face. And because of training, and you know how long it took you, Mark, to get fully trained up so that you could deploy and be operationally ready, this is not something you solve in six months. Um, 
So we need all hands on deck. Well, and retention as well. Uh, The morale has gone up and down and up and down and up and down. Uh, Post-Afghanistan, it's on a huge downhill spiral. Um, I was part of the dark, the dark decade, you know, and morale was horrific. And mostly because of leadership. Uh, The... Bombs and the bullets were fine, but how we were treated by our own person, by our own people when we were uh, deployed, was atrocious. Absolutely over-the-top atrocious. And that's the problem. Um, Because, yeah, we can do all the recruiting in the world, but if people aren't going beyond their initial contract, because they're like, the hell with this, and they pop smoke and leave... You know, we, we also got to be talking about retention. And the all, all you got to do to retain them is uh, have a budget for training. I talked with Patricia's in the 1st Battalion up in Edmonton that uh, get like 10 rounds a year. at the, Like, what? This is your job. You're a rifleman and you get 10 rounds a year. Now, I don't know if he was being hyperbolic, but uh, either way, it's, uh, I mean, they should be every week. At at the range, uh, bullets aren't that expensive. Come on now, but um, the 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 budget for a proper level of training, so you're not just cleaning your weapons all day every day. Uh, that's that's all we need, and which makes us more operationally ready and makes it more fun to be a member. Um, what are our numbers right now overall? When I was in, it was close to 100,000 land, air, and sea. Uh, then it dropped radically, and it's still shrinking. What's our land, air, sea full military numbers right now? Do you know? Um, I had my notes from my podcast with Mark. I, it's <laughs> roughly about 78,000. Oh, so we uh, rebuilt. Um, and, but also, I think that might include the reserves in it as well. So it's, it's, it is, um, it is low. So there's some acute shortages in areas like uh, uh, the combat arms, for example. And I'll tell you another big issue that you've, you've raised uh, training dollars, especially for the reserves and the reserves were about 25% of our Afghan deployment. So we need the reserves uh, YFR uh, flying hours for the military another area that's been then caught cut back and that's training that's morale our special forces <clears throat> are exhausted uh, JTF2 CSOR um, exhausted and, and now I've heard the latest rumor that Trudeau's planning a, a sneak little trip to to Kiev in, in Ukraine uh, following what what Johnson stuff every time you do one of these little things um, that that takes a family, you know, their JTF2 uh, assaulter goes on that. They do a stuff before and during. Uh, they're still fatigued from fighting ISIS and and doing training in a lot of parts of the world. And you you start, I remember talking to one of them a few years ago, you start losing the sergeants and, and others to burnout. Um, it takes kind of the heart out of the, uh, out of the unit. So, we really need money for, for training, for readiness, but also this, uh, this recruitment and retraining. And if we're ramping up spend and if we want to have a plan to make our 2% NATO target, which is what I've said we always should have, it will take time. We have to focus on operational readiness and the, and the needs of the people because the people are the asset. You know, I have a solution. You've... Uh, and, and, You've said bits and pieces of it during our conversation. So here's my idea. Tell me what you think there, Aaron. Let's say, let's just pretend 
that the government, uh, if we're going to be funding the damn CBC, how about we fund uh, Canadian content film creators to deify some of our amazing war heroes. My personal uh, favorite, Tommy Prince. Now, the fact that not every Canadian knows the name Tommy Prince and who this megalith was, could you imagine if we did a Hollywood-level movie about Tommy Prince, how that would help the Indigenous community, how it would help recruiting, how it would help uh, public support for providing more budget for the military. I mean, and not just Tommy, but others, Sam Sharp and, and, and others, but put money towards real good movies to get this done. How do we make this happen, Aaron? We got to get this going. Well, Mark, now that you've done more podcasts that you can shake a stick at, I think you have to start learning the camera and get out there and do the documentaries. You're you're the, the you're the online guy. Uh, you're <laughs> certainly more media savvy than me. Look, there, we are doing that uh, a bit, and um, you know, on my podcast with with Christian Lillington, the Blue Skies podcast, available on all your platforms. Um, Good plug. We Good talked, plug. Nicely done. <laughs> we talked about his first tour, which was 06, 07 Afghanistan yeah. road building. And it reminded me when I was a veterans minister, I, I took a group of veterans and we watched a director's early cut of Hyena Road with Paul Gross. The, uh, it was pretty good. The, the filmmaker. It, it was pretty good. And everyone was trying to guess who various characters were, who was Dave Fraser, who was this, who was that. Um and we are telling our stories, but we should do more of it. I, I 100% agree. Um, the, the Historica uh, Foundation does some good ones, and we've seen some of their – they did a great one um, on, on the Normandy campaign a couple of years ago, and I went to the launch of that, that, that history minute, you know, that Historica Dominion does. Um, but I think we need to do more of it. Um, when I was in Washington for the Congressional Gold Medal being given to the Devil's Brigade, the first special service force, the only veteran I mentioned by name was Tommy Prince. He, he is a hero that more people should know, but it's also part of our, our dealing with reconciliation. You know, Tommy Prince died basically penniless uh, in Winnipeg yeah. and, and came back after the war. He actually fought in Korea. He was one of those guys that that went back to war in Korea um, and then wasn't treated fairly by his country. So I think educating is, is key. Another thing I've said about Tommy Prince, and I might do a podcast on this because I really don't like cancel culture. Um, I've talked about the solution to cancel culture is not pulling down statues because of the failings of people in the past, hold up new statues and new heroes of people that were overlooked in the past yeah. because of attitudes or intolerance. I call it addition culture. We should have a statue to Tommy Prince. Uh, there's a wonderful mural in Winnipeg, and there's an Aboriginal veteran memorial here, and I talked about Tommy Prince in a video in front of that. But this is what we should do to reconcile our, our, our past with our present, not tear down things in the present, build up things from the past that were overlooked because of attitudes. And I think that's a much smarter approach. The woke crowd won't like it, but I actually think it, it is fair and helps us learn, but also helps us recognize that 
no one in in life is perfect. Politicians, veterans, anyone, they'll there'll be some people that do some great things and make some mistakes. And um, erasing people and canceling is is not the solution. It's understanding. And the Indigenous veteran piece is is pretty incredible because if you think they came back and didn't even have the right to vote or weren't treated as new citizens as proper citizens in their own country that they're willing to die for. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. Um, and there's very few First Nations people in the infantry anyway. I mean, that's all I know. Um, just a handful, like not a lot. And of course, uh, <laughs> we, we we could have been a little more woke in the 90s, you know, <laughs> but um, we need more Indigenous people in the military in, in all branches. Um, I agree with you on pretty much everything so far, Aaron. Um, we got to get this uh, Tommy Prince movie going. You got to help me with this. Do, do you know Paul Gross? Can you make the intro? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I haven't seen or heard from Paul Gross in in, in a while, but uh, loved his his stuff. He really cares. Of course, he did Passchendaele yeah. before he did Hyena Road. Um, um, there's a lot of people out there that that care in media. Kevin Newman, the former host on CTV and an anchor who's worked in the, in the U.S. and in Canada, he lives and bleeds things for for military families and veterans. I think he introduced me to Paul Gross when I was minister. Um, so there's a bunch of people in media. Um, when I first met Mercedes Stevenson, who is who is well known on Global, host of West Block, she was actually a documentary filmmaker with a huge passion for military and military history. She still has that. She's done great reports on on JTF2 and visited troops in the field. Um, so I think there's a willingness in, in the media for this. What we need is uh, some really creative filmmaker and maybe a nice grant or two from, from Veterans Affairs because I'll tell you, we've erected all the cenotaphs we're going to erect in Canada. Uh, the Legion takes care of most of those and we have a fund from Veterans Affairs this new way of telling our story is through through film or through social media. And I think there could be a use. Take some of that CBC budget and give it to an initiative like this. Yeah, that's right. And you've mentioned JTF2 a few times. Uh, we're in 66 countries with the show. So for everybody that isn't a Canadian, actually, even for most Canadians, JTF2 is a tier one unit. So everybody knows the Navy SEALs. I've had several of them on the show. Navy SEALs are a Tier 2 unit, with the exception of SEAL Team 6, and I've had one guy from there on uh, on here as well. So SEAL Team 6 is a Tier 1 unit um, in the soft world. So JTF2 is a Tier 1 unit, and they are some hard chargers. A JTF2 movie would be pretty damn cool. You know, uh, these are hardcore operators that are doing some high-speed, low-drag stuff and uh, trained up the wazoo like you can't believe, but they make the average Navy SEAL uh, uh, look look like an air cadet. <laughs> well, look, yeah, Navy SEALs and, and, uh, and uh, you know, special operators in all of our allied countries are pretty tough yeah, customers. They are. And, very, very good. And, uh, and I was I'm kidding about the air cadet crap. No, and, and look, JTF2, you know, pound for pound is, is one of the best assaulting forces uh, in, in the world. Uh, yeah. We don't have enough of them, quite frankly. And then CSOR, the Special Operations Regiment, does a great job too. And both of them are the inheritor of Tommy Prince, you know, the first special right. service force. And what was special for me as a new minister going to Washington 
The Devil's Brigade, which is also a great movie, yeah, uh, where the, Cana- Old, the Canadians good. come up. Canadians come over yeah. the hill behind the bagpipes and the Americans are all scrapping in the yard. And <laughs> yeah. one of the best, you know, pro Canadian, uh, film references. Well, I, I of know. Course, of course but, you, you would know the scene. I like the, the fight scene in the mess hall. Cause it was a Patricia, cause it was a Patricia, right? It was my regiment. The, and uh, the, 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 the big <laughs> Sergeant major, the Scottish guy. Yeah. Um, no. So that first special service force, the joint Canada U S unit, uh, um, the special operators are the current extension. Here's a neat story that only a few people know. When I went down there, um, General Rouleau, uh, uh, you know, who was in charge of the special operations at the time, had me notice how the the special forces officers who were at the ceremony in the Congress had their trousers bloused uh, over their boots, much like the Devil's Brigade did. It became kind of a, a regimental kind of that looks good. Um, thing. So he said, we should do that here. And I said, yeah, we should do that here. And, uh, you know, it's getting held up in the chain of command of blah, blah, blah. And this is where I said, hey, I was an average captain. But being a minister, it's guy kind of jumped ahead of the chain of command. So I said to Jason <laughs> Kenny, let's do this. Like, we should be keeping these, these sort of regimental traditions intact as much as possible, because that's what's important about it. It connects you with this family that stretches back to the founding and all the, the, the battle honors and, and heroics, the ties to Tommy Prince, we should be proud of that history. And small things like the naval curl, which the conservatives we brought back in, in government, this the boot blousing, it seems little to a civvy. They'll go, what do you care about how your pants meet your boot? It, it These looks are cool. things that are very, the color of your beret, the yeah. The PPCLI have that presidential commendation from from uh, Korea still on their on the, their uniform. The I second remember does. the first time I learned two about VP that. Does. Yeah, two two PPCLI. Yeah. So these are neat, very important little traditions that tie together institutions. And if there's one thing that drives me crazy about the woke age we're in, beyond cancel culture, is just the lack of respect for institutions and the fact that it's the institutions, whether it's our parliament, whether it's our rules and, and, and laws, whether it's these military traditions, that is actually what has helped produce this country we have today. So you have to have some respect for the institution being greater than yourself and whatever grievance you have today to complain about, which is what we see a lot about on social media. It's about respecting that, that heritage and striving to make it even better. What's the number one and number two thing that uh, VAC, the Legion, what does this country got to do better to support veterans? Like what's the biggest gap that you see? It's still mental health. You know, it's mental health week. First week of May, we're talking, we started off talking about Sam Sharp. We've made huge strides and both you and I've recognized that Mark in some (laughs) of what Canada is doing, but there's a heck of a long way to go. What what was interesting is some of the benefits when I was Veterans Affairs Minister, I was always, I had a great team and we were always talking data. Some of the benefits, 80% of, of recipients for one specific benefit were mental injuries, not physical. And, and Canadians still envision injury from war or from military service as 
someone who lost a limb or someone who has a, a very bad scar or traumatic head injury or that's kind of what, you know, the long legacy of Hollywood and everything else. We're only getting into the fact that the vast majority of people that are injured and released are people with operational stress injury um, of the complex cases. And so we need more resources. So there's been more and more coming. It was my priority as minister, but there was more to do. And I really think continuing to break down stigma and and myths and attitudes, uh, somebody with an OSI uh, who's in a good treatment regime is 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 doing well, can redeploy like Chris Linford did. They they can transition and have a job. You talked about some veterans struggle and challenge. Some people get fired from their job because it's not the right fit. We have to make sure that we equip those veterans to deal with the setback and find a role where they can plug in or an additional treatment option that helps them uh, in the transition. So that's the number one area it remains because it's the number one complex injury that we have to deal with because you talked about the spiral. If we don't fix that, it impacts their family, their employment. It can lead to addiction. And at the end of that spiral can be homelessness and suicide ideation. And And so we have to intervene very early on. And uh, if, if we do that, there's far more success stories like like you and 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 Romeo Dallaire and look at all the people you've been helping once you unpacked your stuff you know I, I sometimes say unpack your your shit but well you can you know, say that on this show it's okay I I, I even <laughs> use the F I'll word tell you, <laughs> getting someone like you the help you're now a force a multiplier look at how many people you've touched with your message you've touched people into programs that might have been in their own backyard that they didn't know existed. Um, and you're just helping us have more serious discussions about uh, about mental health, about service, about transition. So, um, so we need more of that. Well, you're very kind, Aaron. I appreciate all of that and certainly doing my best, and I'm not planning on quitting anytime soon. So uh, I'm going to close out with this. So... According to OS, uh, OSI's secret numbers that I happen to be privy to, um, success rate at the OSI clinics is around 12%. And the, the percentage range of, and that depends on how they define success as well. Yes, they might that's be, key. They might be a little bit extra generous, so that 12% might be actually um, uh, generous. But the, the numbers that I see nationally, internationally, are between 12 and 16%. That's the range as far as success through talk therapy, which is the only stuff that's actually approved through uh, the OSI clinic. Success rates at various other ones that I've come across go up to 60, 80, and believe it or not, if you listen to Dan Jarvis, close to 100% success rate. Pretty big jump. So there does seem to be a better mousetrap out there. Is... How do we get back all this horrific bureaucracy to look beyond the existing model at a better mousetrap? Because I've been finding them. It needs to be researched, vetted, tested, and then said, well, if it works, it works. It's not conventional, but it works, including psychedelics, which is one of the most helpful things that I've been able to, um, to explore. 
Well, you're describing exactly what I alluded to earlier, which was the passport approach, Mm. where there's a constellation of approved service providers and programs to help people, particularly with a mental health uh, injury or condition. And then that veteran and their family are able to choose and to use their their allocated budget to, to help manage with their case uh, manager, uh, with their, their friends or, or even their unit, um, how best to deploy it. I agree with you. The, the, the challenge with mental health compared to a physical injury is if you have a catastrophic injury, that's the term that is used in the military and, and veterans affairs. It sounds pretty harsh, but it is. Uh, physically, you generally know what to do. Is there a prosthetic? Is there some surgery or operation that will give you partial movement or, 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 or partial sight or hearing enhancement or a whole range of things? With the mental health side, there is no A goes to B simple solution. Some veterans will, will try three or four programs, courses, treatments, interventions before they find something that really sticks. I'll tell you, I've had so many veterans tell me how their service dog saved their life. And yeah, absolutely. And uh, try getting one there. I mean, that's a tough go. That, that's why we, we uh, unveiled that, that pilot. Um, yeah, it's my, it was my kid's favorite photo of my launch as veterans minister because I was surrounded by dogs and puppies at, at the event with the Canada Service Dog uh, School in the Cambridge area, along with Wounded Warriors Canada and a bunch of CAV motorcycle veterans, like all these groups that were helping, I wanted to be there. So what we can do, VAC could actually approve and make sure that this uh, program or, or retreat or what have you is not a fly-by-night. It it's, has a program, it has a counselor, it has credibility. And then fund it. We don't have to, in this area, think that the government in some government office or government hospital has to give you the service, particularly when, as you said, the Veterans Transition Network and their program, um, Marv Westwood, trailblazed it after the Medic Pocket. It was funded by the BC Legion. The next funder of this program was True Patriot Love when I was on the board before an MP. And then we lobbied Stephen Blaney, who later became my colleague, to fund it through VAC. Eventually, D&D funded the Veterans Transition Network. Numbers much higher than OSI clinics. Um, A few years ago, when I met with my friends at the Veterans Transition Network, they had not had a suicide of somebody that had been on their program to that date. That's spectacular. Let's hope hope to goodness that's still the case. So if if these trailblazing, often veteran-led or veteran-involved charities or outside organizations are having tremendous success, why would we not leverage that with funding and support from the government? And it's, it's a bit of a sea change attitude. I always struggle about the Ottawa knows best approach. All the, the bureaucrats here in Ottawa are all great people and all well-meaning, but they sh- they're not expected to be subject matter experts in an area outside their domain. Sometimes Ottawa should follow and not lead or certainly get out of the way, to, to, to use that expression. Um, so what you're doing, helping bring people together, helping people self-select and learn about these programs, that's huge. Um, and anything 
other groups can do. I often say when I left the True Patriot Love Board, True Patriot Love, when I got elected, kind of almost looked at itself as a bit of the united way of the space. They would fund Veterans Transition Program. They would fund uh, Soldier On and Invictus. They would fund military family resource centers and programs for for children to allow them to have more budget. Um, what I love is when groups partner and don't have to say, we have the only solution. If you can say, hey, this couple is in your area, why don't you service them? Uh, if you can introduce us to a sponsor, we're going to Toronto, a sponsor that might like to support an equine therapy program. Let's support one another on this journey. Um, and and as much as Ottawa can help these organizations continue to deliver successful outcomes, um, let's let's do that rather than waiting for government to to solve all problems. Absolutely, and I agree with you. And I think we're at time, Aaron. Uh, any closing any closing thing that you need to get out there before we close out? Well, I'd like to just say two things. Thank you to you, Mark. Uh, what you're doing is so important. I often say talk is important. You know, Bell, let's talk. We all have helped take the stigma down. Sometimes the most difficult discussions are the most important discussions. And the other thing I would say to any of your veterans listening, sometimes even discussion of these these things can can trigger you a bit. Or yeah. if you're feeling like you've been on a program and it hasn't worked, look at my friend Romeo Dallaire, who was at the absolute bottom at a point in his life, but is doing so well now. And he's been a part of the Sam Sharp event I'm having next week for nine years. He's helping on the child soldier issue. He's done so much with Wounded Warriors Canada. Hope is on the horizon. Every day you can make progress, even when it seems impossible, and help your buddy. The buddy check is the most important tool we can all do. I'll tell you how many military veterans were texting me the night of February 2nd after I got uh, a bit of the boot from my my caucus in the midst of the convoy. I I still get buddy checks from some of my RMC friends just checking in, uh, and I really don't have anything to deal with other than disappointment. Um, that is such an important tool, and you you help enable that, Mark. So uh, thanks to all the veterans and their families for their service. And anything I can do as a fellow, fellow person on the journey, I'm here to serve. Thank you for everything, and thank you so much for your time today. You've been incredibly generous, Aaron. And uh, I am so, so grateful for having you on. And again, I'm blown away at your uh, insight within this community. I'm uh, really impressed. You're certainly not in an ivory tower. You're very plugged in. So thank you for, for, for being that. Well, Mark, if you can become prime minister, you can make me veterans affairs minister again. How about that? <laughs> well, we'll work on it. There's a job I don't want. But uh, I'll, I'll do a celebrity boxing match with Trudeau, though. That's pretty close. If anybody, I'm in. We're the same age. We're about the same weight. I'm in. Aaron, please stay on the I, line. I'd I pay to see that. I'd pay to see that. <laughs> I like my odds. <laughs> stay on the line, Aaron, and uh, we'll, tra- right. we'll we'll chat Thanks, after. Uh, please, please stay on. Don't, don't, don't go away on me. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families, <laughs> and even in a politician or two. <laughs> Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. 
If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring. Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com.